So yeah, how's everyone doing out there? So we can start with the uh, my week on Twitter, or what we can do, of course, is I can take a bunch of questions from you, my lovely friends out here. And um, if you do, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the responsible philosophy thing. And if you do want to help out the show, if you've got maybe a little bit of leftover Christmas cash or or anything like that, or maybe your Visa bill hasn't broken like the bow in the children's song, then you can, of course, go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. That's freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. Or you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash donate if you just wanted a shorter way to do it and help me out there. So I wanted to, um, well, tell you guys a little bit about what I've got planned going on. And... Get your guys' thoughts on it. So, if you haven't seen the documentary, the documentary, I hope that you will go and check it out. Not not right now, but I hope that you will go and check it out. Because uh, it was a great documentary to work on. I'm very, very pleased with the outcome. And you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash Poland to check it out or just find it on the YouTube channel, which I'm sure you know about. Check out the documentary. So, I really did enjoy doing the documentary. It was great being out. Uh, a great being out of the uh, studio, talking with people and meeting with people and all that. And I know that I had some positive effects on Poland. I met with some, well, let's not get into details. I met with some people with whom an effect can be affected. Yeah, that, that kind of works. And so uh, I did some good, and um, uh, it certainly changed me. And those of you who've been following my Twitter feed for a while have seen things get just a little bit more punchy. And uh, I think that's... <laughs> Very important. Uh, I may be a little bit late to the punchy party, but uh, I'm making up for it with some, I think, fairly effective uh, haymakers. So I want to do more of that, and I'd like to do some work in um, California, which I find quite fascinating. What a transition from the 1960s to now. Uh, I'm interested in returning back to, I guess, like a salmon swimming upstream back to the land of my birth in Ireland. I really, really want to do, and you'll see why when the movie hoaxed comes out, which I hope will be sometime soon. Um, <clears throat> I want to do a history, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to do a history of philosophy while actually walking the regions where the philosophers walked. You know, go to Athens, uh, do the history of Greek philosophy, uh, do some Roman philosophy, just the Mediterranean as a whole. Uh, I would love to do that. And I'm very good at sort of walking and talking with a camera. Uh, I guess I'm more used to standing with a camera, but it turns out the walkie-talkie stuff does pretty well. And um, it's funny because people for, for the Polish documentary were, were sending me messages like, great script. It's like, there was no script <laughs> to speak from the heart. And it seems to work out very well. So, so yeah, that's kind of an additional expense that is not inconsiderable, right? So to go out and do these documentaries, <clears throat> you need to have a producer and you need to have uh, a camera crew and you need to have sound people. They can sometimes be more than one piece of expertise. You need a bunch, like in the same person, you need a bunch of um, uh, technical equipment, you know, big giant harnesses so that when you move the camera doesn't get too shaky and shuddery. And uh, you need these ridiculously expensive SD cards. And uh, yeah, it's, and, and of course you need to, I don't like to pay people and then have them pay for their own food and accommodations. So that's all uh, <coughs> expensive. And uh, Poland was great, a little bit of a limited focus in terms of who's interested in it. I think it's a universal story, 
but given that it was embedded in Poland, uh, it's uh, had a bit of a less wide reception uh, than other topics, which is another reason why I'm trying to include that in what it is that I'm looking to do. So I really do enjoy it. I think it's very productive and helpful for the world. It's nice to be out of the studio and um, I think some really, really great stuff can come out of it. So these are the kind of things that I would like to uh, work on and uh, I guess I'll just uh, check in with y'all and um, <clears throat> see what you think about all of this and um, where can I get that t-shirt? Um, communists are pirates now. <laughs> That's funny because, you know, it was only 100 million dead. So, yeah, so good, seemed to, seemed to like that. Oh, somebody says, um, HNY, Happy New Year. Hey, I just decoded that in real time. High IQ facility. Uh, got Art of the Argument for Christmas, smiley face. Thank you very much, I appreciate that. Um, Marusia Dark says, Merry Christmas, Steph, and Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you. Do you have a P.O. box where we can send non-monetary gifts like books and cards? Not at the moment. But uh, we're, we're working on it. We're working on it. There's lots of people who want to bypass PayPal. So thinking and working on that kind of stuff as well. And let's see, what else do we have here? I just want to make sure I get the super chats. Love your t-shirt says it all. What's the one question that will stump a Marxist? Um... <clears throat> I thought about that for a while, and Marxists have kind of set up a mindset wherein it's very, very, t like you're always playing defensive, right? And so, of course, you say, well, the, like the, the hundred million dead, I say, well, that wasn't real Marxism, right? It's like, well, then how do we know that anything negative you ascribe to capitalism is just not the real capitalism? You know, like it's really, it's, it's Marxism kind of a low IQ thing, fundamentally. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you a wee bit about it, and you'll sort of understand where it is in context. So, and Nietzsche wrote about this back in the day, resentment, the slave classes, the resentful classes. So when everyone is crushed under a weight of restrictions and, and, and regulations, if there's no particular free market, if you're under like feudalism or you know, uh, a caste system or in ancient China, ancient Japan, I guess not even that ancient, where um, there was no real free market and people were often born into their parents' professions and kind of had to stay there unless they showed some remarkable ability. And the Chinese had IQ tests basically to get you into the bureaucracy thousands of years ago. And when everyone's kind of crushed down, then there's a huge mass of people who were largely undifferentiated, which means it's not really that hard for you to get laid. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it comes down to that. It's not really that hard if everyone's crushed down and kept relatively poor. If you're not smart, if you're not ambitious, if you're not differentiated in some manner that the free market would otherwise recognize, it's not hard to get married, uh, to, to settle down. It's not hard to make babies uh, and so on, right? Now remember, when, when capitalism comes along, when the free market comes along, you get a real meritocracy. And we know this from a variety of economic metrics that I've talked about before, that the square root of a group in, the merit, in a meritocracy produces half the value, right? So 100 people out of 10,000 people will produce half the value of that entire group. So what happens is, 
you begin to get this, where things were formerly quite flat, you begin to get these huge peaks and valleys where people are enormously differentiated from each other. And that's great for the people on the peaks, but it's not so great for the people in the valleys. Now, if you think it's just about working hard, then what you can do is from your very top peak, you can, you know, snarl down the chasm of lack of resources, and you can say, hey man, you just gotta work harder, you gotta try more. But it's not the case. If it's IQ, and IQ is, as we know, 80% genetic by your late teens, and I think it just gets more genetic from then. So if you're just yelling down into the canyons and saying, hey man, just work harder, you're basically like yelling at someone and say, hey man, just get taller. You know, it's just not, it's not gonna happen. So what happens is there's a annihilation panic that sets in to the people at the lower end of the economic spectrum that nobody wants to choose them because of course, remember there's hypergamy, right? So hypergamy, hypergamy is a woman's desire to mate with a man who has more resources, who is more competent, who is more skillful, who is smarter and in the times of social instability, who is more violent. So a woman's always looking up. She's always looking up the cliff, right? I mean, look, we've all had this experience, not since I was married. But beforehand, like uh, with men, you always have this experience, like you're at some checkout counter, right? Like some drugstore or, or a grocery store or something like that. And there's some seriously attractive woman behind the counter. Now, you might be a lawyer, you might be a doctor, you might be, and you're like, hmm, <laughs> you know, I wonder if she'd go out with me, you know? And, and, and you sort of have, because she's showing, you know, youth, good features, fertility signals, all that kind of stuff. So you're like, yeah. I make enough money for the two of us if she's got good fertility signals and good gene displays, even features on the face and hip to waist ratio and all of that, and then you're like, hmm, maybe I could ask her out, right? But it, it almost never happens the other way, right? There's some female lawyer uh, who makes a lot of money or some female doctor who makes a lot of money, doesn't sit there and say, wow, you know, that hunkasaurus who carried the groceries to my car, <laughs> maybe I could ask him out. It doesn't really happen that way. So women are always looking up. And so in a flat society, women don't have much upwardsness to look, right? There is the occasional, you know, the prince's son or whatever, the, the, the king's son, the prince, but you know, she has no real access to that, Cinderella's a fairy tale. And so she just settles for the local village dude, right? That's kind of the way it goes. But when you start to get a free market, you get these peaks and valleys, people get enormously differentiated. Now you get great wealth, for sure, and everyone's better off, but the chance of reproductive success for the people in the bottom quintile of IQ goes down considerably because the women are just trying to look up. Also, of course, hypergamy is stimulated to almost cancerous levels when there's a free market because there are men who are just so attractive, so successful, make so much money, you know. It's like the girl next door versus, say, Kim Kardashian, right, who, aside from her plastic surgery and psoriasis, is quite the pinup girl for many people. So if you look at the resentment and, and the annihilation panic, so when a, a species or when a, an organism is in a situation where it cannot achieve reproductive success, then it panics. And it can't make itself smarter, right? So the bottom quintile, they can't just will themselves to be smarter any more than I can will hair or you can will height or whatever it is, right? And so what do they do? They say the problem 
is inequality. And it is a problem. The low IQ genetics are an organism just like every other organism, and it attempts to survive and flourish just like every other organism. And if it faces annihilation panic, in other words, if the women are all looking up the slope rather than down the slope, then what it does is it says, well, I got to get rid of the top. I got to decapitate the Pareto principle. I've got to get rid of all of these. So what it does is it says that the wealthy have stolen from the poor. Right? It's not true for the most part. I mean, it happens, of course, but the poor steal from the wealthy too. It's like, you know. So they say, ah, oh, the rich are rich because they've stolen from me. Now that, of course, might get some women to say, well, I don't want stolen goods, right? But those women are very rare, and those men are very rare as well. But the whole point of pointing up the giant cliff of success to the top and trying to pull it down is to reallocate resources back to the less intelligent. And that is designed to draw women's attention from staring up to, okay, you know, that's all right. It also happens with women as well, right? So with women, if you have a child out of wedlock, nobody wants to have much to do with you in a free society, which is why it was really discouraged. Because you come with a liability and you come with a, probably a creepy ex and complications and so on. So children are liabilities. The welfare state turns children from liabilities into assets which fundamentally rewrites all of human society and causes it to collapse in on itself over time unless it's remediated. So people who make less intelligent decisions, people who are less intelligent, in a free market, they face annihilation panic. Existential, can't reproduce my genetics, annihilation panic. And they feel massive amounts of resentment towards the wealthy because all the women are staring up at the wealthy and trying to get with the wealthy. It also destabilizes the wealthy as well because you have so many choices for women to sleep with that it can be hard as Chad Alpha square jaw dude head to settle down with one man. So then they say, well, we need a big giant government, a dictatorship, in order to strip away the wealth from the highly successful and redistribute it to everyone else. And they're not talking about wealth fundamentally. They're talking about access to women. Because if you're a man at the bottom of the heap in a free market, the women are all looking elsewhere, not looking at you. And the only way to get them to look at you is to get resources. Now, you can't get resources by competing, right, any more than I could get resources by competing with Sting for a concert space, right? I mean, I just can't. So you can't compete to get the resources. So you have to get the resources by some other manner. Now, you can't just go and steal the resources because then you're a criminal. So you have to make stealing the resources legal, which means redistribution, which means the welfare state, which means socialism, which means communism. Communism evens things out. It lowers the high. It raises the low. And it improves the reproductive opportunities for less intelligent people. Now, you could say, well, yes, but a lot of them get killed off and so on. But as you talked about in Poland, right, whenever communists get in power, they just shoot everyone in glasses, right? They, they decapitate the top tier of intelligence. Well, we understand why. Because you can't compete with them. And so you've got to take stuff from them. And if they get destroyed in the process, well, 
so much the better. Sexual rage, sexual exclusion rage. So basically communism is the result of low IQ incels. I guess I could have said that more succinctly. <laughs> but why would I ever want to say things more succinctly? It's just not possible. I know, I know. This week on Twitter. This week on Twitter. We'll get it. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, okay, sorry. A couple more questions. Uh, Michael says, thanks for your downloadable MP3s. I've listened to lots of your podcasts while cycling to work and enjoy your insights. I appreciate your work very much. I wish you a great 2019. Thank you, my friend. That's very kind. What is your take on the subscribe star issue? Is there collusion? Also, most IQ estimates say 60 to 70% heritable. Monogamy solves the hypergamy issue in capitalism. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so uh, let me just see here. So Subscribestar, um, I, I got some emails, people saying get into Subscribestar, then as far as I understood it, didn't Subscribestar face some difficulties with payment processes and so on? Well, this is what happens when the left is, is facing free speech, right? So if the left is facing free speech, then they'll just go for your source of income. Uh, it is just going to get uglier and uglier uh, unless we start listening to reason. Most IQ estimates say 60 to 70% heritable. So for that, and I, listen, I was as surprised as you are. I thought that the heritability was um, 70 to 80% in later middle age, but Dr. Richard Hare, who runs Scientific Journal Intelligence, I did an interview with him. Uh, he gave me that data. Uh, that is the very latest. So uh, you can check that out on my channel. Monogamy solves the hypergamy issue in capitalism. Well, okay, <laughs> I will get that. But monogamy is supported by egalitarianism. And so think of it this way, because I just did this show on Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, Arnold Schwarzenegger had an affair with his maid at the same time that he was having a baby with, what was it, Maria Schreiber or something like that. And his maid was married. Now, think of being the maid's husband in the Schwarzenegger orbit, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger wants to have sex with your wife, right? And not like Arnold Schwarzenegger now, who's still, you know, he's busted up his knees and all that and Still, uh, but still skis, you know, still works out. He's 71 or whatever, right? So, but this is what, like 20 years ago or whatever, right? So, guy's in his early 50s. So he's a good-looking guy, wealthy beyond most people's fantasies uh, and uh, successful beyond most people's dreams. So you are the husband of the maid of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger is putting the moves on your wife. What are you going to do? Okay, hold on, honey. I'm just going to hit the gym for three years and come back, get back to you. Like, you haven't, got a, you haven't got a hope in hell if she's just into hypergamy or whatever, right? So the problem with the free market, and this, is, this doesn't reduce my commitment to the free market. I mean, it's still the morally ideal system, but yeah, we just have to recognize what's going on or where things are. The problem is that um, monogamy is destabilized by the presence of very wealthy and successful men. And that is a problem. The other thing, too, of course, is we developed. We developed in a tribal system where, just based on the bell curve of human attractiveness, you wouldn't really have access to that many attractive people, right? So let's say that you're in a village of 100 people, you know, 50 women, 50 men, just make it easy, right? And the women of sort of youthful and, and fertile attractiveness and availability and so on is maybe five or 10 women, right? 
So you're a guy and you've got to choose from five or ten women of the random. So you're just very unlikely that you're going to meet with a very attractive woman. Now, it's just, it's just the, you know, if you take any random sampling of five or ten women, you know, there's, but you're not going to come across like Elle McPherson in her prime or uh, Giselle, whatever her head is, right? Hadid or whatever it is, right? You're not going to see Kylie Minogue in her prime or Kylie Jenner in her prime or who still is, right? So you're just, and you're not going to get Photoshop, you're not going to get makeup, you're not going to get massive amounts of liposuction, plastic surgery, toning, and all the other crap that people pack onto their frames so that they, look, they can look like cyborgs of pinup attractiveness. You're not going to have access to pornography. You're not going to have access to playboys. You're just not. So your standard of female beauty is, you know, five, maybe 10 women of marriable age, and you're just not going to have that much access to attractive women. Now, with capitalism, of course, you get mass distribution of literature, you get pornography, because basically all advances in human technology have something to do with I'm sure, pornography. Uh, I'm sure that... Um, the printing press was partly just to print penthouse letters at the very beginning of time or something like that. And so for a man, now you have immediate, constant access to the top one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of female attractiveness. And that's just, I mean, women have a legitimate complaint about this, that it just skews your perception of female attractiveness. And so women are always... They have access to like movie stars who are fantastically rich and charismatic and handsome and, and uh, uh, popular and so on, right? So that kind of skews female perspectives of who is a valid male uh, or an attractive male. And it's the same thing with female attractiveness. And so, you know, how many women look good from every conceivable angle? Well, <laughs> not that many. And therefore, the women who are in 360 porn, um, well, it's... Uh, um, it's just not a natural standard to have. So it does stimulate our hypergamy or, or the male gaze or whatever to the point where it does become destabilizing. That does work against monogamy, and uh, that is a particular challenge. Again, these things can be solved, but the idea that, that you just can solve the problems of the free market by just saying monogamy is probably not going to work out that well. Sean says, I, you know, this is too much fun, so we can do, maybe I'll just do a separate one on, on the Twitter thing, but Sean says, I try to do my part by spreading truth and philosophy to friends and family, with the exception of my girlfriend. Most tell me I'm obsessed. What is the best way to spread these ideas, and how do I know if I'm being too overbearing? Yeah, you know, I get that too, right? So one of the things I've been doing on Twitter is I've been pushing uh, hard the race and IQ stuff, right? Because um, it's basic self-defense, right? If... if um, all disparities in racial outcomes in a free market are ascribed to white racism, then what you're doing is essentially to blacks and Hispanics, you're saying that those evil, nasty, vicious, racist, bigoted, privileged whites are holding you down by the neck and by the throat and it's blah, 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 blah. And that creates a lot of rage against whites. And that's very dangerous when the population of non-whites is increasing, right? So it's, it's basic self-defense, basic de-escalation. Be great to avoid a race war. You know, that's a life well lived if you've helped avert a race war, which, you know, it's going to come if we can't talk about race and IQ. It, it's absolutely going to come, and it's going to be the worst thing in human history, without a doubt. So, yeah, forgive me if I don't mind upsetting people just a little bit in order to avoid the greatest civil war catastrophe that can occur in the world ever. Uh, so, 
Uh, that would be a hard way to learn about the fruits of diversity, so I don't want that to happen. So I have been talking about it uh, uh, quite a bit. And what I do is I'll post something about it, and then people will come piling in, and I'll just point out the facts, link to the studies, link to the interviews. I've done 18 interviews with world-renowned experts in the field of intelligence. I've read, I don't know, probably 40 books on the subject, listened to countless uh, uh, lectures and so on. So, you know, I'm certainly no scientist, but I got a pretty good grasp of what's going on. I just sounded like Scott Adams for a moment there. I got a pretty good grasp. <laughs> but um, so what happens is then is that people say, Steph, you're obsessed with race and IQ. And that's just low-level MPC, pro it's just low IQ programming, which is, here's an idea that's uncomfortable for me. I can't refute it. I don't want to look anything up because I'm uncomfortable. So I'm just going to call whoever is talking about it obsessed. And, oh, look, happy day, I've solved the problem. And it's just, yeah, so if people tell you that you're obsessed about it, it's not an argument, right? It's not an argument. And... They're telling you, the, the, the real question is, what are they, what are they telling you? Why, so when they say that you're obsessed, what they're telling you to do is to back off from talking about it with them. And then the question is, why do they want you to back off from talking about it with them? Now, if you can have a conversation about the conversation, that's very productive. Like if you get into a weird, weird, messy conflict with someone, what you want to do is have a conversation about the conversation, right? So if you talk, let's say you're talking race and IQ with someone, and they get really uncomfortable and say, you're just weirdly obsessed with this topic. What does it matter, right? Well, then what you can do is you can say, well, you seem very upset by this. Can you tell me more about that? Now, if they're honest, they'll say, you know, it really, it really bothers me. It really bothers me that you're talking about this. I'm not sure why. But it's not really fair to just call you obsessed because that's kind of mean and vicious and, and uh, it's a little bit on the realm of verbal, verbally abusive. And... If you can have an honest conversation about the conversation, then you can actually have conflict can lead to intimacy. This is a very fundamental rule that everybody needs to understand. Conflict can lead, lead to intimacy. Uh, my daughter is getting older and she's occasionally getting a little moody, which is natural for, for sort of this, this phase in life. And we have the most amazing conversations about this moodiness, you know, like what happened, where did it come from, what did I do, and, and how can I change, and it's just fantastic. You know, you get to really explore yourself and figure out what makes you tick so that you can listen to the world without reactive hysteria censorship arising in your hypothalamus and giving you fight-or-flight mechanism for mere ideas, which you then justify by verbal abuse on others. So... Um, have a conversation about why they're upset, why they're tense. Now, if they refuse to have that conversation, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what to say, man. If, if people attack you for talking about what matters to you and then won't have a conversation about why they're attacking you, you either put up with the attacks, you shut up, or you get better people in your life. I know which one I chose. All right. Michael. Oh, sorry, I got that one. Thank you very, very much. Joshua R. Paulson. Paulson. Why is that? Paulson. Oh, that's from a movie. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. Paulson. Oh, somebody remind me where that's from. All right. Thanks for a great year of logic, history, and philosophy. Any comments on the theory that MasterCard is behind a lot of the payment processing problems? Well, that is a very, very big question. I would like very much 
to um, to know more about this. But a lot of this, of course, is just rank uh, rank speculation, right? And as far as that goes, it's very very hard to figure out what uh, what's going on. So. Here's a fundamental issue that really, really is distorting the market as we, as we live it at the moment. So if you think about, sorry, I'm going to put my hand in my mouth while I'm talking. If you think about something like Nike shoes, right? So think of the welfare state and how much money it transfers to the poor and disproportionately to their representation in society to blacks, right? So... Trillions of dollars have been transferred to the black community. Now, the black community is going to have certain tastes that are not identical to, say, the East Asian community or the Jewish community, the white community, and even the Hispanic community. And so because you've transferred trillions of dollars to the black community over time, the black community has gone and spent that money. And that's created a huge amount of resource allocation, capital allocation, right? And same thing with Hispanics and so on, right? So when you have, and, and single mothers and all that. So when you transfer trillions of dollars from the rich to the poor, the poor then go and spend that money, and that creates a huge amount of demand in society. And unfortunately, this is how capitalists get roped into defending the existing system, because capitalists have organized their business models around the poor having trillions of dollars that they otherwise, let's just say otherwise they wouldn't have in that form, right? If there wasn't a welfare state, there'd be fewer poor people, there'd be more economic opportunities, there'd be less single motherhood and so on. But the point is that right now, if the welfare state, let's say, were to end tomorrow, I mean, it's going to end at some point, but let's just say it ends tomorrow, then there are trillions of dollars that will suddenly shift well, not in any particular, probably $100, $100, $200 billion, that will, that will shift or will stop being paid by the poor for whatever it is. Now, that's a huge and wrenching change for the businesses that supply goods and services to the poor based upon the poor's preferences. And the poor's preferences, since they tend to be low IQ, tend to be low IQ preferences, right? So it tends to be, you know, lottery tickets and it tends to be consumer items uh, that uh, they can't really afford. It tends to be uh, liquor, uh, cigarettes, you know, not all, but some of it, right? And, and some of it, of course, are single moms who are putting food on the table of, of their kids and so on. And, and usually that food is, is garbage for a variety of reasons. But anyway, the point is that if the welfare state ends tomorrow, very large businesses are going to lose billions of dollars. And they will have to recalibrate their business model away from the endless sea of money coming in through the welfare state from the poor. I mean, I've talked about Carlos Slim in Mexico. Uh, he um, is a telecommunications giant and so on. And he loves immigration from Mexico into America. I'm sure he even has no particular foe of illegal immigration because of remittances, right? So what happens is people come from Mexico to America, they often end up on welfare, and then they send the welfare portions back to Mexico. And I think it recently surpassed oil revenues as Mexico's huge source of income is, is remittances, particularly from the United States. 
And so if you look at Carla Slim, so getting people from Mexico to America and the existence of the welfare state is foundational to his business success. So if somebody says, well, let's build a wall, he's not going to like that, which is why he bought off a whole bunch of New York Times debt and probably has some influence over the editorial policy of the New York Times. And so businesses, if you start talking about the end of the welfare state, businesses will fight you like crazy because they have molded themselves to particular business models based upon lower IQ people having more money than they otherwise would have. Now, um, what do they call it in credit card, in the credit card world, the people who pay off their debt every month, they call them deadbeats because they don't make any money from those people, right? So the, the credit card companies are not particularly averse to people who carry stuff over from time to time. And, you know, if you have good credit and you, you have, I don't know, an asset like a house, you can go to a bank and you can get a loan against the value and it's very low percentage, you know. So who is it who ends up using credit cards for cash flow issues, right? Who ends up borrowing on credit cards? Well, people who generally aren't that smart or don't have a lot of resources. So credit card companies are left-wing in a way, and I'm not talking about every individual, and this is just a basic business incentive, but credit card companies are left-wing in a way because the left transfers a lot of money to the poor, and the poor transfer a lot of money to, uh, to the um, credit card companies. All right, let's just see here. If you want to give me a super chat, I'm very happy to, uh, to hear it. Let's see here. Have you seen any good examples of alternate media, alternate media branching into fiction to fill the void caused by the social justice warrior takeover of franchises like Doctor Who, Star Wars, etc.? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's a good question. It's a big question. So I, you know, as, as you probably know, I, I come from the business world, and, but I also come from the art world. And I was not a successful artist. I did one play. I wrote one play. It was an adaptation of Turgenev's Fathers and Sons that did pretty well. But as far as fiction writing went, as far as novel writing went, um, I was very good. And you, you can tell for yourself. You can see my books at freedomainradio.com forward slash free. But back then, there was no entree into that world. I mean, so in, what was it, 19, early 1950s, when Ayn Rand completed Atlas Shrugged, she had to send it to 16 different publishing houses in order to get it published. No, sorry, that was the Fountainhead. I think by the time Atlas Shrugged came around, she had more of that. So she had to send her book to 16 publishing houses, the Fountainhead, in order to get published. And she already did have a book that was out, We the Living, but I don't think it had done very well. But that was in the 40s. I think it was published in 43. So, I mean, there was the war and all that, but it was very tough for her to get the book published. And so Magnum, The Fountainhead is one of my favorite books, certainly in the top five. And can you imagine trying to get the Atlas Shrugged published now? Uh, you know, I mean, through mainstream publishers, it, it would be impossible. So I don't know. You know, they say, well, politics is downstream from culture, and so we've got to get our own publishing houses going, get our own movies going. And I've talked about that. But given the way demographics are, I don't know that we have time to do that. I don't know. I, th I think we need to. Uh, philosophy might just be about now helping people pick sides rather than prevent uh, the mess that could be coming up. So um, I have not seen a lot of really great stuff that comes out of that. 
Um, but uh, all right. Um, uh, Brian Burt, thank you for your donation, says, I know you focus mainly on philosophy and objectivity, but I was wondering if you had any advice on the prepping aspect of a civil war scenario, preparing mentally, physically for a down power grid uh, water system. Well, no, I'm not an expert in that, and there's a lot of people out there who do that kind of stuff. I mean, there are some basics that are fairly obvious. Uh, try to um, have your own power supply uh, uh, or need less power. Uh, have a, a garden if you can. Uh, store some food. Uh, and and try not to live downtown of a city. That's <laughs> probably not a great place to be. So, uh, but yeah, there's lots of people who do that kind of stuff. And um, uh, Rocco Lucente says, "Do you have any plans to do any debates in 2019? I would love to watch you take on some of the talking heads of the left. It would be great fun." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to do it. Uh, I certainly did enjoy the stuff in uh, Australia and New Zealand. So. Yeah, it it could be. It could be. I'd rather do it live than online, and that's a bit of a challenge as far as travel schedules go. Hard to find people who want to debate with me, though. I'll tell you that. Uh, Marusia Dark says, Working on non-social justice warrior fiction is part of what I do. Thelema, Mystic Will for Libertarianism, Beyond the Pale for IDPOL, if you want to check it out. All right. So uh, I'll do a few minutes of... of what's been going on on uh, Twitter lately, and um, hopefully uh, that will be of interest. So you should follow me on Twitter. It's, it's a great feed, and I do, I do post quite a bit. I'm very active and engaged. I have almost 400,000 followers and a huge number of retweets and so on, so it's, uh, it's good. So I will talk just a smidge about, I guess, some of the bigger uh, tweets that I've put out recently, and hopefully that will... Uh, Grab you by the gizzards and shake them till you squirm. I don't know what that means. All right. Um, let's see here. So when it comes to popular tweets, I've been talking about uh, Muslim slavery, right? And, and this is very, very important. I'll tell you sort of fundamentally, and I, I was guilty of this in the past, which I fessed up to and apologized for. The people who just talk about American slavery and so on, I'm really, really getting impatient with that. Really impatient with that. So in the Islamic world, there still is slavery. There still is slavery in the Islamic world. So talking about slavery, people 150 years dead, where it was only a few percentage points of the population who had it, most people didn't like it, and a war was fought to end it according to the popular narrative. So picking on Christian slavery is, is terrible. It's terrible. So I put out a tweet just talking about the Muslim slave trade, which is something that we need to talk about. And the reason we need to talk about it is it's very, very important. It's very, very real. And it's not discussed. And it's not discussed because of horrible hypocritical reasons. So this was a very big uh, tweet um, that, uh, that went out and, um, yeah, it was almost 400,000 impressions. So that's pretty good. And I, I wrote this, um, oh, you can see, all right. I wrote the Muslim slave trade was 200 times the American slave trade. Now people have an issue with that because what they do is they say, well, to North and South America, a large number of slaves. Yes, of course. But the vast majority of slaves were not taken to America. 
So the Muslim slave trade was 200 times the American slave trade. And I get that from 350,000 slaves coming to America. And I took a fairly conservative estimate of 80 million slaves in the Arab slave trade or the Muslim slave trade. So yeah, 200 times the American slave trade. Muslims castrated slave boys. It's very true. It's one of the reasons why there is not a big black population in Muslim lands, because castration was how they prevented slaves from reproducing. And I've heard one in 10 boys survived it, maybe four in 10 boys survived it. But yeah, they would hack off the penis and the scrotum. This is a time, of course, before anesthetic, before any kind of decent medicine, before antibiotics. So yeah, infections and horrifying stuff was ramp rampant. So yeah, that's bad. White Christians fought to end slavery worldwide. Muslims as a whole have yet to apologize for slavery, right? There's not a lot of mea culpa that I see coming out of the Islamic world, like, gosh, you know, that was really, really terrible and, and so on, right? Some Muslims still practice slavery, right? So Muslim slave trade, 200 times the American slave trade. Muslims castrated slave boys. White Christians fought to end slavery worldwide. Muslims as a whole have yet to apologize for slavery. Some Muslims still practice slavery. White guilt? Frack right off. We're done. And so the idea, I mean, this is, I find it morally repulsive. Like, it makes me skin crawl when people claim to care so much about slavery and all they do is nag white people. And we know why they're nagging white people, because white people will pay off money to avoid verbal abuse with the idea that somehow this isn't just going to invite more and escalating verbal abuse. So you get activist groups and blacks and others just nagging white people about slavery and, and so on, Jim Crow and segregation. Yeah, these are bad things, but... They're cold cases, right? There's already been a confession. There's already been a mea culpa. There's already been a war. There's already been, right? But um, in the Muslim world, it's not so much, right? So why aren't people going to actually free the slaves in the here and now? In the Muslim world, why are they continuing to nag white people about slavery that ended 150 years ago and the white people who ended slavery around the world and spent a huge amount of blood and treasure in order to do so? Because there's no money and there's more risk in criticizing Islamic slavery. So it's not because people care about slavery. That's one of the reasons I want to talk about this and why these tweets are so popular on Twitter. As everyone gets deep down, they don't care about slavery. They don't care about slavery. They care about getting money. And slavery is the way that they do it. Like nagging people about slavery is the way that they get money. And it's horrible to exploit the suffering of tens of millions of people around the world and to exploit the suffering of hundreds of thousands of slaves in America in order to get money? Come on. I mean, that's repulsive. That's really, really gross. To exploit the suffering of other people for financial gain? Well, it's kind of like slavery when you think about it. I mean, it's really, really horrible. And like all the people who, who, who come in and start talking about Christian slavery, it's another thing that I find really bothersome these days as well, which I'm pointing out on Twitter repeatedly is picking on the one religion that says love your enemies is not the bravest thing that you can do in the world, right? Come on. I mean, you have people practicing slavery in the here and now. You've got open-air slave markets in Libya where you can pick up a black man for $400. Come on. And yet people want to go and nag a few white Christians 150 years dead, rather than stuff happening right now in the world. It's gross. It's gross. And uh, it's uh, a hideous exploitation and manipulation of historical injustice, just in return for, for money. 
I, I find it just horrifying. Now, there is, of course, uh, the people, uh, this one guy said, I think the conclusion is axiomatic, but exposing children to enriched curriculum and experiences environment will increase IQ in a more dramatic way than selective breeding practices of pairing high IQ persons, right? Because somebody said, how can IQ be raised? And I said, by making babies with a higher IQ person. So there is this fantasy, and look, it's a seductive fantasy that, you know, if you just play Mozart to your kid and you give him the right colored blocks, his brain is going to explode into high IQ genetic wonderland, and it's just not true. It's not true. Nobody knows how to raise IQ, other than by having children with a higher IQ person. There are thousands of genes that each incrementally affect IQ, according to the latest research that I've read. And so there's no one simple switch. And the brain is not a muscle. Like, um, you know, you can take a weaker person and you can put them in the gym and they will gain some muscle. It really depends on whether they're genetically gifted in the accumulation of muscle. You do hit a kind of peak. And I've worked out pretty hard in my life. And, you know, certainly without massive amounts of roid rage juicing, I was not going to become any kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger. But um, there is a cap on, on what you can get. And the enriched environment does not stimulate massive growth. And for those who are like, well, you know, we haven't tried it or we need to try it harder. Like there was this whole no child left behind. There was Head Start. All of these programs in America, they poured $100 billion with the world's greatest experts and the world's greatest programs to try and close the black-white IQ gap. And the result was that black IQ rose a little bit in the testing for a while. And then it just went back to normal, went back to normal. So... Yeah, this idea that we can just tweak the environment and change genetics, uh, isn't, there's no validation for it whatsoever, and it's a dangerous... I really dislike it when people just spread this kind of misinformation, because it's, it's just emotionally driven. And yeah, there's a good tweet here. Somebody said, thanks largely to Western science and technology, Africa's population has skyrocketed from 229 million to... 1,250,000,000 in just 65 years, 1950 to 2015, while average life expectancy has soared from 37 years to 60 years. Sorry, but I'm done apologizing. They've received enough. And uh, other people, too, like they, they want to just say it's all culture, right? So this one guy wrote, uh, West, the West here does not apply narrowly to Europe, but to all Enlightenment-inspired cultures around the globe. Also, difference is not IQ, but philosophical underpinning, e.d. culture of criticism, quest for good explanations, irreverence for authority, and more. So I wrote back to him, and I said, okay, it's easy to test your theory. Find me a country with an Enlightenment-inspired culture where the average IQ is below 90. I'll check back, I promise. I have. There's nothing. Oh, your mommy issues. So, yeah, I mean, if I criticize women, a bunch of low IQ NPC people come up and spit up the programmed hairball called Steph has mommy issues, right? And, and the reason that's just so dumb and such sophistry is was it, what it does is it associates the word mommy, which is a diminutive, right? Because uh, he doesn't say he has issues because he was abused by his mother or something like that. It's a way of associating the term mommy with you, which makes you seem like a child, like a baby and so on. It's just basic programming. And uh, it's very, very, very sad. It's not an argument, of course, right? Another popular tweet. Do you know why Christians were the ones to end slavery as a moral abomination? Because Jesus never bought, sold, or owned slaves. Not exactly the same for all prophets in history. And that is uh, very true. Somebody posted here, 
The Arab Muslims of the Islamic State of Mauritania still enslave up to 20% of the black population. So I said, hey, BLM, Black Lives Matter, have I got a cause for you, right? Because there is real slavery going on in the world. There is real slavery going on in the world. But you see, there's no profit in that. And there may be some risk in that. So why actually solve real slavery when you can nag white people about slavery they never enacted? Now, this was an interesting one as well. It's this guy uh, was talk about uh, the Spaniards get the biggest pass of all about colonialism. I took quite a bit of New World colonial history. It's a, long, it's a long grim story downplayed to make the Americans and Brits primarily look like the only bad actors. The angriest voices, Spanish speakers want to forget that bit. So they're talking about the negativity of Spanish colonialism. And it's kind of weird. So Spanish colonialism, like all colonialism, was a government program. The people didn't vote for it. Their taxes were, and then sometimes their lives, they were conscripted and enslaved to fight uh, for colonialism. And so saying it's somehow to do with Spaniards is insane. It's a Spanish government. They're playing a game of, of international geopolitics, of color your map with your flag's color and so on. And so I said, yet another failure to differentiate the tax serfs from the government. Imperialism and colonialism harmed the common man and woman back then just as it does now. It's like blaming the cows when a farmer beats his wife. But you don't take the actions of the government and then extrapolate it to all the people. And somebody said, uh, are you confident you could have predicted advanced European civilization if you'd lived during the peak of Babylon, ancient Egypt, the Med, China? So thousands of years ago, right? So I said, yeah, I'm not confident what the IQ of Africa will be in 3,000 years. So what? I mean, the IQ in Africa has probably been fairly static for 150,000 years, but maybe it'll change. I don't know. But what, what does that have to do with anything, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So people, uh, they do this as well, right? You do seem quite angry, though, said one guy. I'm not, actually, right? But um, emotional mind reading over the Internet is another core piece of MPC programming. So it's a way of constantly trying to distract people from your actual arguments by thinking that you can figure out someone's emotional state. It's very, very sad. Oh, the cultural bias stuff. Learning tests, taking skills and cultural contexts of tests can materially improve test scores. And it's like, nope. Nope, nope, nope. Listen, I'll tell you guys something that you really, really need to understand. And not, I'm sure not you guys in particular, but people out there as a whole. Listen. If you can design a test that eliminates the black-white IQ gap, to take one example, you could do the East Asian Hispanic IQ gap, right? If you can design a test that accurately predicts future outcomes and that eliminates this gap, you will be lauded by me too as one of the greatest benefactors of humankind. So the idea, well, there's all this cultural bias and IQ tests and so on, it's like, you know, people have been working on this stuff for a hundred years and they need to make IQ tests as accurate as humanly possible. Because that's the only reason and the only way that they have value. So if IQ tests were culturally biased, they would not accurately predict life outcomes, right? So just to give you an example, right? Let's say that I go to Japan and they give me a Japanese IQ test in Japanese. I'm going to get zero. I'll be a vegetable. I'll be a hedgehog or something, right? Now that won't accurately predict how well I'm going to do in society. So the IQ test must accurately predict how people turn out in society. 
So if you drop out of elementary, you probably have an IQ in the low 80s. If you drop out of primary school, you got an IQ in the mid 80s. And, and you can step up all the way. If you get a PhD or you're in grad school, you probably got an IQ of 125 or more. If you graduate from college, it's like 110 to 120, maybe 125. So you need accurate outcomes. And they were developed just for that. I mean, you know who developed, you know who developed the IQ test. It was the Army, the US Army. Because they weren't having consistent success rates with putting people in more complex or less complex situations. So the US Army developed the IQ test, and the IQ test was used to differentiate people who should go to the front and people who should work with their minds, right? And so literally the survival of the entire civilization required that armies accurately measure intelligence. Because if you put all the smart people on the front lines, they may be slightly better than the soldiers. But if you put the dumb people in all the logistics and the crypt, uh, the cryptography and, and um, uh, making sure uh, everything gets to the right place on time and, and planning the attacks and like, doing the propaganda, if you take all the dumb people and put them there, your army will fail. So if your army fails and you get overrun, you are destroyed as a culture, as a civilization, as a country. So the greatest possible incentive was in place for IQ tests to be accurate. So if blacks scored lower on IQ tests, but that was inaccurate, it would, meant that it would mean that you're taking your greatest asset, which is not weaponry, but intelligence, and putting it on the front to be killed, which is terrible. And if, if the other army does a better job, then they will be better planned, they will get more logistics, they will get the ammo to the right place at the right time. They will have better tactics, better food, and they'll win. So armies had the IQ test and developed the IQ test and needed it to be as accurately as human possible because the IQ test was an arms race between various armies. So they needed to get it right, and they have. And the army won't take you if you have an IQ of 83 or below because they can't find anything for you to do that's not more trouble than it's worth. In fact, one of the main reasons why America lost the war against the communists in Vietnam was they were called McNamara's morons because then Secretary of Defense, I think it was Robert McNamara, drafted a whole bunch of idiots, people with very, very low IQs, and they went out there and just caused havoc and mayhem and horror. And it's interesting because the communists hate, the left, hard leftists hate discussions of race and IQ. Now, if you were the, a communist and you wanted America to fail in Vietnam, what you would do is you would say to America, you can't talk about race and IQ, everyone's exactly the same, it's bigoted, it's racist, and so on. And that way you'd get a bunch of low IQ people going into the American army causing it to self-destruct. I mean, it's a fantastic weapon of war. So you, you can't just, I don't know, just be responsible. It's very, very important stuff. Be responsible. So I did have, a, I guess, a bit of a run-in. I'll just do this very, very briefly with uh, David Pacman. <laughs> And I mentioned this before, but, um, you know, he was implying that I was some sort of white supremacist. And so I, it wasn't that hard. I just found some Jewish lawmaker who said that the Jews were the master race and blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, let's, here's a real guy. You know, I've never said anything like this. So let's, let's get together. And of course, he vanished, right? Jewish in-group preference. Never seen that before. 
<laughs> so, uh, oh yeah, um, Taleb, the, the writer, uh, Lebanese uh, writer, writes on mathematics, I think. Uh, uh, he got uh, kind of snarky with me and, and all of that. And um, yeah, it's just a shame. It's just a shame. Uh, and uh, you can sort of follow that. But yeah, you know, it's just kind of like, well, this is insensitive. It's like, yeah, well, I don't know. Can, can a brother find out if it's true or not? Or is that just too much to ask? <laughs> so yeah, I do, I do some combat and uh, it's kind of fun. It's good, you know, flex the muscles and all of that. All right, so let's just do another couple of minutes. Oh my gosh, it's been an hour already. Time with you flies, my friends. So Matthew Littlejohn says, have you watched the series Deadwood? It's easily the best, most intelligent and uplifting writing I've seen on TV. Love to watch you review it. Is that, is that a Western? Is it, is it, is it onto me? <laughs> I don't know, is it a Western? Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, so. Okay, so is there anything else that you guys wanted to uh, chat about some more before I go on uh, with, with my day and, and get ready? I'm going out for uh, dinner and dancing and a great party tonight, so I hope you have something fun planned. Or, you know, the other thing too, you can have a very introspective New Year's. I used to do this. I probably should again, but I used to sort of write my year and, and what happened, the good stuff and, and the bad stuff and stuff that I can improve. You know, the, the year is like a project. And when I was in the business world, at the end of every um, big project or even smaller project, we would have a postmortem like, here's what went well, here's what went badly, here's what we can improve and this and that. So it's probably not a bad thing to do for your year. It's one of these, you know, life can be a little bit plotty sometimes, you know, you're just kind of getting up and you're doing your thing and you're having some food and you're doing some work and you're hanging out. And the new year is a pretty good zoom out place, right? It's a pretty good place where you can stop and bookmark and see where you are in your life's journey. The turning over a new leaf uh, and where you are in relation to your goals, in relation to your ideals, in relation to what's going to make you the happiest. And I've certainly, you know, like with my family and we're doing this with friends as well, just talk about the last year and what we liked and, and what can be improved. And with families, of course, when you're a parent, kids are always growing and changing. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on that way, which you constantly need to readjust things. And um, like I, I, I'm cutting back on carbs, so I couldn't get to sleep. Last night till, till pretty late because it's a little tough to adjust. <laughs> been, a, been a little carb heavy for the last half century or so. And uh, so I woke up a little bit late and, you know, my daughter made some breakfast and all that. It's like, I remember when <laughs> couldn't let her go near the stairs without freaking out, right? So, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a good time. And you, you, you don't have to, I mean, going out and partying and stuff like that is, is great. But there's certainly nothing wrong, and I've done this myself, you know, sit with some friends, you know, maybe have a glass of wine or something like mulled wine. It's great in the winter. Go for a hike with snowshoes, have some mulled wine. And, um, oh, I just, just thought of a very funny story. Okay, it's not that obscure. It's obscure, it's not. So I had a friend when I was growing up, and, you know, I don't know if you had this with friends, but when I was growing up, a lot of my friends had a little bit of a cruel streak. It comes from the nihilism that I talked about. Oh, no, I haven't talked about that. I haven't put that show out yet, but I will. And one of my friends 
had got together with his friends outside of my arena. He went to a different school. We played Dungeons and Dragons together. And he said that he and his friends were going to have what he called the total 17 evening. This is when we were sort of in our I was 16 or 17. 17, based on the magazine 17. He said, you know, we're going to go ice skating down at City Hall, and then we're going to go and get hot chocolate and uh, look at the Christmas displays. It's going to be a total 17 evening, right? And he never invited me along. It's a little cold. It's a little cold. And I did at some point ask, you know, I've, I've always been like, well, I'm always going to get 100% of nothing if I don't ask for something, right? Because <laughs> if you don't, you know, the, world, the, the girl's not going to go out with you if you don't ask her, so you might as well ask her because if your fear is that she won't go out with you, you can achieve that very easily, 100%, usually by not asking her. But uh, yeah, so I asked. I said, oh, that sounds fun. Can I come along? It's like, no. He's like, you know, we, we have enough people. <laughs> what do you mean you have enough people? In the world, there's no room in Toronto for me to wedge myself in. And um, yeah, this guy later became a terrible drug addict. Oh, terrible, terrible stuff. Probably not just directly because of that, but uh, watch, how, watch how you are um, not nice to people, uh, particularly in your personal life. It can be it can be pretty rough. All right. Mysterium Lugosi says, Happy New Year. Thank you for everything that you do. Love you. No homo. Hey, I appreciate that, man. I love you guys, too. It really is. You know, I know I'm sort of front and center, but it's a real community effort, and can't do it without you. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. So thank you very much as well for your very kind words. I will check out Deadwood. Um... Timothy Doba says, furthering my personal legacy is secondary to furthering the ideas of which you speak. Thank you, Stefan. Furthering my personal legacy. I hope that doesn't mean give up children for philosophy. Um, let's see here. Somebody else. Gresh! <laughs> Sounds like the name of an orc in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. King Gresh. Think I might be relatively low IQ, entering in and out of depression for quite a bit. Due to my insignificance, thinking about taking my own life very seriously. As the years roll on, don't know what to do. Oh, my friend. Oh, that's terrible. Think I might be relatively low IQ, entering in and out of depression for a bit due to my insignificance. Thinking about taking my own life very seriously as the years roll on. Don't know what to do. I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm so sorry to hear that. First of all, don't. Please, please don't. If you're listening to this show, you have value. You have value. The world needs you. The world is going to love you and hate you a little bit for telling the truth. If you're into philosophy, you are an absolute antibody in the fight against the corruption infesting the Corpus Christi of mankind. So please, please don't take your own life. There are hotlines you can call. Um, uh, if you'd like to have a chat with me, please let me know. You can find the email on the website, but don't uh, take your own life. I will tell you what I think is happening. I'm not a psychologist. This is just my amateur opinion over the internet, of course, right? But from what I've read, my friend, most people who have self-destructive thoughts have had those thoughts implanted in them by some hostile other in their history, usually a parent. Could be somebody else. Usually a parent. Usually a parent. So for me, I very clearly remember at the age of five or six, my mother... I'm sorry for the swearing that's coming up, but my mother would sit and smoke and brood in, in night and she couldn't get to sleep and so on. And, and because she had this fantasy of, of this life of red carpets and glamour and so on that 
Only her children were standing between her and all of this magnificent, stupid, Robin Leach lifestyle crap that she imagined would be her life without children. So she'd sit there and smoke, and, and it was tough to sleep because she could just randomly yell or just brood and so on, right? And I do remember lying awake at night, and my mom, at one point, when I was five or six year old, a year old, screaming at the top of her lungs out of nowhere, I hate these fucking kids. And I also remember being kind of shocked. This is kind of complicated, but I think it has relevance to, to your situation, my friend. Because I remember my, wife, my mouth, you know, widening in horror, my eyes widening. But at the same time, it's like, well, of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. Of course you do. Of course you do. I mean, it's evident in just about everything that you do. In the violence, the beatings, the right. Of course you do, right? You don't beat what you love. You don't attack what you cherish. Now, this hatred of my mother towards myself, I'll just talk about myself, right? this hatred can easily become implanted within you, right? So, of course she said it because she wanted us to hear, and she wanted us to hear so that we would not challenge her, because when you, as a parent, when you threaten the bond or you destroy the bond or you create a negative bond, in other words, what bonds us as parent-child is not love but hatred, then what you're saying is, kid, you're hanging by a thread. I can abandon you like that. And it speaks to a very primitive and powerful and deep part of our mind. And the question is, why is it that you feel insignificant? Once you have glowed deep in the heart of another human being, you can never question your significance again, my friend. Once you have been in the center of the throne of someone's love, and regard, you can never ever wonder if you have value again. So this is my question to you. Who was it in your history that told you you were insignificant or treated you as if you were insignificant? Who was it who told you you were nothing? Who was it who treated you as without value? It wasn't you. I bet it was your mom or your dad. Or both. If you had both. Who ignored you? Who was so distracted by their own depression or lust or rage or boredom or self-hatred or addiction to treat you as insignificant? Now, if this did happen and I'm certain that it did. The question is, as your life goes on, as your life moves forward into the future, which voice wins? Why, we have a cloud. We have this identity, right? Like, think of it as a, you've seen this, right? I'm sure if you live in a warmish climate, right? You've seen this, I'm sure, like you see these lights, like a, a street light or a light outside of a porch light or something like that. In the summer, what do you see? You see all of these moths and bugs and crap and who knows what, all f flying around this light. Like a crazy solar system of random movement. You see all these bugs flying around this light. But the light is your soul. The light is your soul and the bugs are everyone's opinion of you and everyone's thoughts about you and everyone's impression of you and everyone's treatment of you. They're all flying around. The light of your soul. 
And if you are passive, then usually the worst voice takes over. And you mistake your identity for someone who just hates you. So my mother said repeatedly that she hated me. Now, if I had internalized that, then I would say I am that who is hated. I am self-hate. So someone hates me. It's not unfair. I was a good kid. I was a nice kid. I was a fun kid. I was a polite kid. I wasn't a difficult kid. So she hates me and I can sit there and I can say, I am, in order to have some kind of bond with my mom, I have to agree with her. Because if you disagree with someone who hates you, what do they do? They usually will attack you physically. And this did happen. I was almost killed by my mother. So, if you internalize the voice that says you're worthless, you're insignificant, you're low IQ, you're this, you're that, then you become an empty house inhabited only by the ghosts of indifference. I could have become an empty house haunted only by the hatred of my mother for myself. But my mother didn't hate me. And whoever treated you with indifference, my friend, was wrong, wrong to do so. Wrong to do so. Cruel to do so. Parents owe their children attention like they owe their children food. I don't have to feed some guy in India, but if I lock some guy from India in my basement, I damn well have to feed him or I'm guilty of murder. Children are trapped in the house with their parents, particularly when you're toddlers. You can't just go wandering around and find other people to chat with. So my guess is that when you were trapped at home with a mother, with a father, with a babysitter, with an aunt, with an uncle, grandmother, it doesn't matter. You were treated with indifference. You were treated as insignificant. Nobody cared. Nobody paid attention. Don't make the mistake of thinking that they're right. Don't make the mistake of internalizing the sociopathic indifference of cold-hearted people. You had to live in an ice world. Don't become ice. You had to live among coldness. Don't freeze yourself out. The way to appease the heartless is to pretend you have no heart. I had to protect and hide the love that I had for myself, the respect and regard I had for myself. Because if I had acted upon it, I would have been physically attacked, might have been seriously injured or killed. So I had to hoard, you know, like you're going through uh, a, a snowstorm and, and you've got a candle and, and you've got to keep it alight. You, you, you huddle over and you, you stagger through the snowdrifts and the ice and the wind just trying to keep that fire alight. That's what it's like trying to keep self-regard in a violent, chaotic, abusive, indifferent environment. Don't let that light go out. Hold on to it. You have value. Because you're honest enough to admit that you feel insignificant in a public forum. Do you know how much courage that takes? Do you know how much courage it takes to type in that you feel insignificant, that you feel useless, that you feel self-destructive to this degree, that's a brave thing to do. Now, my mother was angry at me. 
not me, you understand, just, you know, she had this fantasy and the fantasy tortured her about what her life could be and she could get a great guy if it wasn't for these meddling kids, right? So my mother, I was in the way. I was a negative in her life, right? But there's only one solution to that. Frack them. Fuck them. Whoever treated you with indifference has already had their life and already made their choices. You have a whole life ahead of you and you have one switch that you can push that can release you from these feelings of insignificance. It's just that that push is really destabilizing because you'll get very angry. You know, like how dare people treat you as insignificant? How dare people give birth to children and ignore them? How dare people give birth to children and then say that they hate those children? How fucking dare people? There is a battle for your future. Not only what it's going to be, but whether it's going to be. And I want to ally myself with the part of you that's really angry about being treated as insignificant. Because you're not. Significance is a choice. It is not a curse. Significance is willpower. It is not physics. It is not inevitable, but you have no significance. You have the honor and the honesty to talk about being insignificant in a public forum. That gives you great nobility and great potential. But what you have to do is fight your way free of all of the voices that are telling you that you're insignificant, that you don't matter, that you're nothing. You understand the voices that were implanted in your head that are telling you that you're nothing are all of the people who let those voices in their past win against their own significance. So let's say you had a mom who treated you or said that you were insignificant. You understand that she did that because she let her voices win, right? That the, the light on the porch, you can get so many bugs that land on it that it goes out. It cracks, it breaks, it dies, it goes dark. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Please, I'm begging you, don't let that happen. Don't let the voices that tell you that you're insignificant escalate to the point where you're willing to let them win. I have a theory, probably nonsense, but I think it may be applicable in this case. My mother used her children to vomit up her own self-hatred, to harm us so that she wouldn't kill herself. So the question is, if you're told that you're insignificant, someone has to pay because it's a horrible thing to do to a child. Someone has to pay. It's a crime. It's a moral crime to verbally abuse a child in that manner. Somebody has to pay for the crime. So I'm going to guess 
that you don't have children. Or if you do have children, you haven't replicated the eradication and evacuation of a human soul called treating people as if they're insignificant. What that means is that you don't have a way of discharging your own insignificance by inflicting it on others, right? Which means that you are eating the entire meal of moral horror that your family inflicted on you and has probably been inflicted for generations. And so the buck is stopping with you, which means because you don't have a way of discharging your sense of insignificance onto others by making them feel insignificant, the self-destructive impulse of insignificance is bearing terrible fruit within you. If you can cough up a poison into someone else, they get harmed and you survive. And then they have to go and find someone to cough up that poison too. Like, what is it, the movie The Ring, you get this videotape and if you watch it, you have to get someone else to watch it within seven days or you die. Like, it's just you're passing it along, passing along the crime, passing along the horror all the time. And whoever says, stop, it stops with me. They face annihilation. That's why people pass along these crimes. That's why people abuse their children. Because you face annihilation, self-destruction, if you try to stop the cycle of violence, abuse, neglect, indifference, exploitation within your family. It is a life crisis. I've faced it. You're facing it. But what's on the other side of facing down that demon of cyclical violence is power. You, you can't even imagine. Like, you, you look and see what I, do you know, I felt insignificant. I talked about this recently in a show I haven't published yet. I felt young. I felt like nothing. I felt like I barely existed when I was in my teenage years, my early 20s. And I was treated that way as well. In my 30s, I faced it down. Like hell. Like going to hell. Like going to hell. You stand, you face that demon. And you say, buddy, it's you or me. You think I'm nothing? Let's find out. Let's find out who's really nothing. And you go through a lot of turmoil and you go through a lot of anger. And it's difficult, it's painful, it's that journey to the underworld. On the other side is power. The demon of insignificance is telling you to be insignificant because if you have significance as a child and your parents are telling you you're insignificant, they will escalate their attacks upon you until you comply. People tell you, like I had to act as if I did not love myself because if I had acted as if I loved myself, my mother would have attacked me further. You've got to hide it. The candle, the snowstorm. So you're at that place now where you have to challenge the voice that says you're worthless. Then how you challenge that voice is with logic. Because what you can say to the demon is this. If I'm so worthless, 
Why do you spend so much fucking time telling me how worthless I am? Why do you pay so much attention to me and focus on me so much to tell me that I'm worthless? If I'm worthless, why the fuck are you even here? Demon of insignificance. Why do you keep circling me? It's like the moth going round and round the light saying, I don't care about the light. The light means nothing to me. It's like, yeah, then why don't you break orbit and fly the fuck off? No. No, no. You see, it is your very potential that causes the demon of emptiness to circle you forever and attempt to get you to vanish. It's because of your potential and your power that you must be disarmed. Right? If you have five guys running at you and only one of them has a gun, who do you focus your attention on? Disarming the guy with the gun. It's the guy with the most power that you focus on disarming the most. You had the greatest power and potential in your family, I guarantee it. That's why everyone had to treat you as insignificant to continually disarm your existence. Because if you exist and you come to life and you are born again, and you are whole, and you are integrated, and you are authentic, and you are honest, and you are just plain there, do you know what happens to them? Their emptiness becomes real to them. Spiritually, psychologically, it's you or them. Don't let them win. Don't let them win. Please. Don't let them win. The world needs you. I need you. Philosophy needs you. Virtue needs you. Your future children need you. Your future happiness needs you. Do not be plowed under by the horrifying indifference of history. Rise. Stand. Fight. Acknowledge and accept the very power and significance that has people in your mind continually disarm you to the point of death. Take the power. Live. So I hope that helps. I hope that helps. And I'm very sorry to hear where you are. I really am. It's terrible what was done to you. All right. I do my last super chats, and uh, then I hope really listen to that. Really listen to that, please. I'm begging you. <sighs> All right. I I I think we're done. I think we're done. And um, yeah, I think I got everyone super chats right. Yes, yes. Okay, so thank you, everyone. Wait. Uh, here's the site to Steph's t-shirt. Guys, proud producers. I make red pill music. Excellent. And, um, okay, so yeah. Uh, freedomainradio.com forward slash donate to help out the show. I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, I will put your resources to good use. I hope that you're still tweaking the studio a little bit. I'm not still wildly happy about the lighting, but um, we'll, we'll continue to, to make it better. So I really do appreciate everyone's support. Freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. The upcoming documentaries will be wonderful, I promise you. And uh, I really, really do 
thank you guys so much for giving me the resources to do what I do. You know, you're seeing all the people who are like kicked off Patreon and, and demonetized and you name it, um, it's, you know, it's a decision that I made many years ago to not rely on advertising, to rely on you guys here. And it has given me the freedom to have an enormously positive impact in the world. One day when I'm old and grizzled, uh, I will write down all the stuff that's happened behind the scenes and tell you everyone that I've talked to, some of whom would really, really surprise you, and all the good that's happened as a result of your support of what it is that I'm doing, which you can't see, uh, but that day is not today. <laughs> so uh, thank you everyone so much. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful, happy new year. Uh, I look forward to your support in the new year. I really, really appreciate everything that has been happening uh, recently in particular. So, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. I will talk to you soon.